Welcome to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have real, honest, smart, and sometimes even hilarious conversations about co-parenting, separation, and divorce, and all that goes along with that. I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, certified life and relationship coach, and happily divorced mom who helps women decide if they should stay in or leave their marriages, and then guides them through the process one step at a time. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. I know that you have a million things going on in your life, and your schedule is nuts, and you're trying to fit in all the things. So I truly, truly appreciate the time that you take to spend a little bit of time with me. So thank you. And I'm super excited today to bring you an episode with my dear friend, Andrea Owen of Your Kick-Ass Life. For those of you who don't know Andrea, she is a life coach, an author, a hellraiser, and she is passionate about empowering women to value themselves and fiercely love who they are. She helps high-achieving women let go of perfectionism, control, and isolation, and choose courage and confidence instead. You can find Andrea over at yourkickasslife.com and links to her podcast are there too, which I highly recommend listening to. I've been a guest on Andrea's podcast, I think seven or eight times by now. (laughs) I actually kicked off the series that she now calls Conversations About Shit That Matters with Unqualified People. (laughs) And we sort of unofficially started that series when she had me on her podcast to talk about recovering from my eating disorder and diet culture. And if you have never heard those episodes, I will link to those in the show notes because they are pretty powerful, if I do say so myself. So she wanted to have you know people just who are not experts in things, just women talking about shit that they're struggling with. So we did two episodes on that, and then we did two episodes on rape culture in the last couple of weeks. So we'll link to all of those in the show notes, and you can listen to those there. But anyway, so I've been on her podcast a bunch of times, and I'm so honored to be able to bring her here to talk today about grief, nostalgia, and letting go. These are conversations that Andrea and I have often, just personally. And Andrea is divorced, but her first marriage did not have kids. We have talked over the years a lot about the grief that goes along with um, getting divorced, especially loss of your in-laws and the family. And the other, the sort of the ripple effect, right? And how that's something that some people are really surprised by. She was really surprised by it. I was really surprised by it. But it's also something that my clients often struggle with. It's one of the burning questions that they deal with when they're trying to decide whether to stay or go. That look, what's going to happen with my in-laws? What's going to happen with my my nieces? You know, am I ever going to see my nieces again? All of those questions. And so I am thrilled that Andrea and I could take our personal conversations and make them more public um, in this arena around this topic. So that's coming up in a few minutes. And I just want to give you a like a lowdown about what's been going on over here in the last couple of weeks. I have had a crazy, crazy few weeks or last week in my social life, which is insane because for a long period of time, I like had no social life. (laughs) 
<laughs> if I wasn't dating, if I didn't have a boyfriend, like I was basically home all the time. And I still don't have a boyfriend and I'm not dating. I'm not even pursuing anything at all for a variety of reasons. But this last week, my friend Lisa, she is my social calendar. She has all sorts of fabulous, fancy things to do all the time. And I am usually her plus one for these things or sometimes part of her plus eight, as was the case this week. And so this week we first went to, for those of you don't, that don't know, Joni Mitchell turned 75 day this past Wednesday. And by the time you listen to this, it'll have been a week or so ago. But anyway, um, and Lisa is on the board of the music center in, here in Los Angeles. And so they hosted, they did this tribute concert where all sorts of amazing singers sang Joni Mitchell songs. So it was like a whole tribute concert and it was just unbelievable. Seal sang just, oh oh my God, that man. Brandy Carlisle, who is just one of my all-time favorites. Who else was there? Graham Nash, Emmylou Harris, Glenn Hansard, who just makes my heart go pitter-pat. Los Lobos. Oh my God, just incredible numbers of people singing incredible things. But then we, afterwards, we were invited to the gala. And you guys, we were out till two o'clock in the morning. It was such a late, we didn't sit down to dinner until 11 o'clock at night. The concert went so long. It was started like an hour late because Joni didn't get there until for an hour late. And I mean, the whole thing, it was crazy. I was sitting behind Tom Hanks. (laughs) Angela Bassett was like right over there. Like it was just the most star-studded Jake Gyllenhaal. Like it was the most star-studded event I possibly have ever been to. And it was, oh God, it was so much fun. So anyway, so that happened. And then of course it took me two days to recover. And then we had my friend Lisa's 50th birthday party on Saturday night. And then last night we went to the ACLU awards dinner. And we did this last year where it's the their annual Bill of Rights awards. And last year was crazy because they honored Colin Kaepernick, but it was a surprise. So none of us knew that he was gonna be there. And everyone lost their ever-loving minds. My friend Lucia was on top of a chair at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Like, this is a fancy cocktail event. <laughs> and my friend Lucia was up on top of a chair, stomping her feet, screaming. My friend Terry went a little bit, like, unconscious. And she was like, wait, is he here? Is he going to be here? We were like, yeah, he's coming out right now. And... So this year, you know, I have to say that the event itself was, it was beautiful and the honorees were incredible. It was Eva Longoria, who I did not know about her levels of activism. I did not know that the entire time she was on Desperate Housewives, she was going to school and getting her master's degree in Chicana studies and political science, like crazy stuff. Alyssa Milano gave just a stunning talk about the Me Too movement. Tarana Burke was honored. So it was honestly, it was a little bit more, it was a little bit more of a staid event than it was last year. But I think it was also a lot more poignant because we were, I was in a room with, I don't know, I'm really bad at figuring out how many people are in a room, but maybe it was 500, maybe it was a thousand. I don't know. And you know, politicians and celebrities and movie moguls and executives and all sorts of people and activists. And to be in a room 
full of that many people who are fighting to affect change and talking about what it is, what our inalienable rights are, what does that mean, the word inalienable, and talking about unity and coming together and the strength and the power of the unity in that room, I got to tell you, it was a healing, soothing bomb. It really, really was And so I'm just sort of coming off of that today and having this conversation with Andrea was sort of, you know, it just, I feel like I'm so honored to do the work that I do. I am so honored to have the friendships that I do and to be able to attend the kinds of events that I do because I feel like if I'm not doing work that matters, Truly, my soul will die. I was listening to one of my best friends, Peggy, the other night. Last night was talking about how the work that she does right now is not feeding her soul. And she feels like her soul is like withering and dying while she's working to, you know, make money and put her kids through school and do all that stuff. But her creative soul, she's an artist, and that her creative soul isn't really being fed and that she feels like a part of her is dying. And I just thought, my God, I am so blessed. I am so fortunate that that is not my lived experience right now. And it was for so long, you guys. It was my experience for so long. And I will say that it's really only in the last probably seven years that I feel like my soul is on fire and I get to do what I love and I have the conversations that I love and I get to I just interviewed my friend Joshua Beckett who's a licensed marriage and family therapist and I didn't interview him for the podcast I interviewed him for my class and we just had this in-depth conversation about what a healthy relationship should look like and we went on for over an hour and it was so just deep and rich. And I was exhausted. By the way, this was on Thursday. So this was after I had been up until two o'clock in the morning. And by the way, because I'm, you know, however old I am right now, (laughs) my body wakes me up at six, no matter what. So I got four hours of sleep and I was dead to the world. I was so exhausted. And I get on this call with Joshua and we just can't stop talking about this stuff, right? I'm so grateful that I get to have these conversations, that I get to bring you these conversations, that I get to be, that I get to have this richness in my life. And honestly, it's what I want for all of us. It's what I want for every single one of us all the time. So with that said, it is my great honor to bring to you my conversation with my dear friend, Andrea Owen, and bring to you our conversation about grief, nostalgia, letting go, guilt, shame, all of the things. Here she is. Hey, Andrea. Hi, Kate Anthony. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast this time. I'm excited (laughs) to share some wisdom with your audience and I'm just, I'm honored. We are honored to have you. We, the collective we, the royal we. The royal we. (laughs) Good. My audience and I. I think I can speak for my audience when I say. Thank you. So we're here to have a conversation about grief and nostalgia, letting go, shame, guilt. (laughs) Just easy topics for this Monday that we're recording. Yeah. Exactly. Just some light conversation. Mm -hmm. And you know, just for my peoples to know that, you know, Andrea and I are really good friends and we have these conversations all the time on the regular as friends, right? And then every once in a while we have a conversation where we're like, we should probably talk about this on a podcast. Just record this because it's good stuff, I think. I mean, I think so. Yeah. 
So Andrew and I have had a lot of conversations about over the years, over many years, about like losing family members, mm-hmm. losing people that are really important to you. And, you know, like I've talked about, I've had it before on the podcast that one of the things that was really hard for me in my divorce was losing my in-laws and feeling like I lost that mm-hmm. side of my yeah. family. Same. Yeah. And you have a similar experience. Do you want to briefly clue our people into your to my divorce story? Yeah, I think you and I have some similarities with our circumstances, but they are vastly different. So my one of the things I think that I sort of came out lucky in my divorce is that my ex-husband and I did not have children. It was in our plan to have children. We had been together for 13 and a half years when we split. And we were planning on, we had everything planned out. We had planned on having three children. We knew this <laughs> we talked about it many times. And we were, I very much had struggled with control and had planned on conceiving at this certain time of year. And time came, he changed his mind and was like, well, maybe we should wait until this and that. And it was all very strange. Come to find out he had begun to have an affair with our neighbor. They had been seeing each other for seven months when it finally all came undone. And I found out. And then in a matter of a handful of weeks after I found out that he had been having an affair and wanted to be with her, it wasn't like, oops, I had this affair. Let's work it out. It was, I purposely, you know, (laughs) went across the street and seduced this woman and we are in love and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And she got pregnant right away. So they started a family and that in and of itself was heartbreaking, but it was a clean break for me because there was no reason for me to stick around. I did not have to co-parent with him. We didn't even have a dog together. So it was both a clean break as well as, you know, like it was a good thing and it was kind of negative because I literally had no reason. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because those are the things that tether you Exactly. Not just the other person, but kind of tether you to their family. To the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And looking back, you know, my life now would look vastly different had we had a child together. And the way my circumstances were is that he was the middle child of five boys and his older brothers were married when we first got together. One of them like just got married and then his younger brothers had a couple different long-term girlfriends, but these women were my sisters. They were in my wedding. They were my best friends, literally my best friends. And then his parents became my parents. We met when I was young. I was 17. And just a handful of months after we started dating, my parents got divorced And I had half siblings, but they were much older. So I was essentially an only child and his family pretty much like adopted me. And I mean, it was even the extended family, you know, it was like uncles and cousins. They were all around. They were that kind of family that always had get together. Sometimes it was like, oh my God, again, we're going to go see your family. (laughs) Any kind of celebration, anything. I mean, it was also really great too, like any baby shower, celebration, graduation, work promotion. I mean, it's like you took a giant bowel movement and people were like, woo! And to get together, they did. And then it became mildly dysfunctional, a lot of enmeshment yeah. back on it, but it, they were my family. And I think that that's the thing I was unprepared for when mm. it all fell apart. Right. And it, that is so... Again, that was like one of the most painful aspects for me too, was that in my situation, I was so close to my in-laws. They have two sons. So I was, you know, their daughter. I had a sister-in-law. 
brother-in-law and a niece and we were all very cool. We vacationed together every year. We weren't like you guys because yeah. we were spread out all over the country, but every year we would go to, my in-laws have a beach condo in North Carolina on the coast and the Outer Banks. And we would go there every summer and spend a week all together, the whole family. Mm-hmm. And the first summer that like rolled around and like the trip actually didn't even happen. I think that first summer <laughs> they like, but then later on, you know, my ex-husband started bringing like his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I you was see pictures of that because social media exists and you're yes. friends with all those people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's a thing that not a lot of people talk about. Well, two points I want to make, and we can go in either direction. I think that what happens in a lot of couples, and this was my experience, it was one of those things where for a long time, I mean, since I was like 19, my intuition was like, this isn't the best relationship for you. But it was one of those things where Elizabeth Gilbert says it in Eat, Pray, Love. She says the only thing more painful than leaving was staying. And the only thing that was more unthinkable than staying was leaving. And that's how I felt for most of the relationship. And I will tell you something with all honesty. A lot of the reason that I stayed was because of his family. I could not bear being away from them because they had become my family. My parents had both remarried and I was very uncomfortable with that. I was not into personal development at all. I hadn't healed any of my wounds. So I was getting my needs met, my feeling of love and belonging through his family. So to walk away from that, I was like, why would I do that? It was both unconscious and conscious. Yeah. I think the unconscious part was that I didn't, I don't know, maybe it was conscious, I knew that that would be more painful than actually losing him would be to lose the family. Yes. The other thing I think is that that doesn't really get talked about that this is really what I was unprepared for was having to deal with the grief that was separate. So there was the grief of losing him and this dream of having a family with him. Cause I think that a lot of times that's what we're very much attached to. Mm-hmm. And then the grief of losing his family. And I think that the thing that was, probably the most eye-opening for me, and this took me probably, I don't know, six, eight years to realize, was that I had resisted grieving the family because it seemed like it wasn't a big deal. Like they were just, you know, I wasn't married to them. You know, they weren't my blood family. But when I finally realized how much pain I was in from losing that, and it was really from listening to podcasts and reading books about doing my own work with love and belonging, because that's the work I do, and how we are biologically wired, for lack of a better word, tribe, a community of people. And they've done studies on this with, you know, people that are in platoons and gangs and prisons and all these different, like, families, for lack of a better word. Right. That's when I realized, like, oh, this is what my grief is. It's not about him. It's about them. Yeah. And it's about, there's a banishment. There's, it feels like, I remember when we first got divorced and again, like my father-in-law thought of me as his daughter and the first thing he did, because people don't, especially back then when I got divorced, Gwyneth and Chris Martin had not yet gotten divorced. Uh And so the idea of conscious uncoupling was not really on the table yet. And so the only divorces that anybody really knew about that were public were nasty you know, they were Brad tabloid. That's what happened when I was going through my divorce yep. was Brad yep. Aniston's divorce. That was ugly. Yes. And so everything, it has to be nasty. It's got to be splashed plus on the tabloids. They are, you know, fighting about everything and, you know, millions of dollars, whatever it is. Right. And so my father-in-law who loved me, the first thing he did was say to my ex-husband, you better, you know, watch your back. She's going to come after you for everything you're worth. That happened to me too. To his credit, my ex was like, what? <laughs> 
<laughs> like, have you met her? Like, what are you even talking about? Yeah. You know, like, that's not how we're doing this. But most people, you know, because this was the, I don't think my in-laws know anyone who's gotten divorced. I think this was such a shock to them. Mm-hmm. Everyone, you know, they've known forever have stayed married for better or worse. Right. But I will tell you that was so painful to me that somebody who really, I considered like a father to me and I knew loved me like a daughter could turn that quickly against me because that's all he knew. And the cultural expectations of divorce weighed more heavily than me, right? Than his like knowledge of who I was. I had a very similar experience and it got so ugly between, well, and I also had a different circumstance that you, that I had this other woman who was (laughs) trying to be a part of the family and my ex was trying to make her just like slip right in, like no big deal. And then it was mostly my sister's-in-law and my mother-in-law. It was kind of like the men against the women. I hate to say it. They were pissed off at my ex-husband, their brother, you know, my mother-in-law's son. And they were like, no, we're not just going to accept this. Like we need some time to heal. And he was angry at them from what I understand, I mean, I wasn't there, but from what I've been told by some of them is that it caused a rift in the family. And honestly, things have never been the same since. And it's been 12 years. And what I mean by that is that my ex-husband doesn't attend as many events as he used to. It didn't work out between them. They did have a child together and they co-parent, but he's still single. And, but from what I understand, things have never been the same. So that was that circumstance that was really awkward and painful for everybody, even her, even the other woman, because she was lied to about our relationship, we were married and had no talk of divorce at all. And he had told her that right. we were divorcing and that I just wasn't accepting it and that I was a crazy person and all these oh. other lies that he told about me. So I think that, I mean, which direction do you want to go? Do you want to talk about grief or do you want to talk about just like the logistics of how hard this is? <laughs> <laughs> oh, whatever. Yeah. I mean, so let's talk about the grief because I do think that there are so many ways in which we don't want to deal with grief. Like that's shitty, right? (laughs) Like that's the thing that we don't want to face and we don't want to deal with. And it's also the thing that follows us wherever we go. When we don't deal with it, it becomes this sort of weight on our shoulders or, you know, a, to say a cancer, but I mean, you know, it's a toxin, right? That eats us alive really from the inside when we don't process it and we don't address it. So How do we do that, Andrea? Yeah, what you resist persists. Mm -hmm. Here's what I tried to do it the hard way by resisting, by poo-pooing it, by also making it mean something that I would get upset and have feelings when I would see their annual camping trip of them all together, when I would see Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving and Easter egg hunts and all of the holidays, all of them, because Uh I was still friends with a lot of them. I'm pretty much friends with everyone except my ex-husband on Facebook. So I did a lot of unfollowing and, you know, still friends with them, but just unfollow because I'd be like minding my own business. And then I would come across these pictures and sometimes they were pictures of him and they were jarring and, and I have no communication with him. So I think that's also different for people that might have children and be co-parenting and mm-hmm. see this person on a regular basis. And then a person like me who I have not seen him in 12 years or spoken right. to him in a really yeah. long time. So it's jarring. And I finally got to the point where I was like, all right, I think my body's trying to tell me something. And that because I have these feelings, it does not mean that I'm still in love with him. It does not mean that I want to get back together. It doesn't mean anything except 
my body is having, I feel like my body is confused. (laughs) Wait a minute. minute. And it's still processing that because, you know, trauma lives in our tissues. I think it was a coach that I had. She said, anytime you have an intimate relationship with someone, that part of them lives in your cells and your brain and your body kind of haven't caught up with each other. Like reality just hasn't happened yet. And your only job is just to surrender to whatever happens and not make it mean anything. Yeah. And that's what I started doing. And I also have written letters to them that I will never send. Yep. I've also expressed immense amounts of gratitude. I went Mm. back to my former in-laws. This was not long after everything happened and I went to their house and I just sat them down and thanked them for everything, you know, cause they took me in and just, I yeah. wanted them to know how much they meant to me yep. and will mean to me forever. And I truly think I have surrendered to the fact that this very well may be a lifelong grieving process that I do. Yep. And it's become so much, the impact of it has become so much less because of that. And I think I was listening to Monica Lewinsky talk about, not that what I've experienced is remotely comparable to what she experienced, but when you're talking about trauma, she said, and I'm going to totally misquote her, but she said something like, my trauma used to be feeling like, you know, a bulldozer coming over me. And now it feels like a hummingbird. I love that she said that because she's still saying that it Mm. exists. Yes. And it still exists, but it's not taking over her life anymore. And that's what mine feels like. I just honor it for what it is. You know, I spent 13 and a half years with this person and we essentially grew up together and had some really great times, had some really hard times. And this was my family. And it also helps me to know the science behind it. That Biologically, my brain got really fucked up there for a while. And I'd love that you use the word banished because that's what happened to me. Yeah. I was essentially like shoved out of the house. And yep. from a literal standpoint, because his parents' house was like the home base for everyone. And I lived there for a while yeah. and everything happened there at that house. And I remember it was, so we had split up in February and March, the next month was his mom's birthday. And I had gone over there to celebrate. And I remember sitting in the kitchen thinking, this is the last time I'll ever be here. And of course, them saying things like, you're always welcome here. You're always a part of my family. And I hear that all the time. I saw it on the, I was sick last week and I watched way too many episodes of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And, you know, poor old Scott Disick, God bless him. But I felt bad for him because he's sitting there and everyone's like, we still love you and you're always welcome here. And the look on his face. And I'm like, I know that. (laughs) Yeah. Because like, they don't get it. The family doesn't get it. They don't. And, right. And yeah. Like, that, oh, the Kardashians are similar to what I had, like that big family, dysfunctional as they are, but tight, tight. Yep. And when someone else comes in, you get a taste of that. And then when it's over, it's hard. Yeah. And you know, the thing is for when you have kids, right, all of this has this other layer yep. because when, and I encourage my clients to have this conversation directly with their family members, with their in-laws, right? Mm-hmm. With their exes or soon to be exes or whatever family. Because, you know, when my father-in-law came to me or said to my husband, you know, sort of turned on me momentarily, thank God he kind of pulled back, right? It was important to have the conversation with them. It was important to, for me to say to them, I love you guys and you guys will always be my family. And because I am my son's mother, right? We have this, it's important for us. So, I'm not really explaining this well because I didn't have to do this as much, but I do talk to my clients about having that direct conversation with their in-laws because what happens is people make up stories. 
They make up stories like my father-in-law made up, right? And it's important that we actually address it. One of the most important things that I believe in is talking through and communicating through transitions. Because what we tend to do is pretend that everybody just kind of has the same agenda through the transition, right? And we don't actually say, here's what I want it to look like. And, you know, here's what you can expect from me. And here's what I invite from you, right? We just are like, well, I mean, everything will be the same. We have an expectation that we don't communicate. And then when it doesn't turn out that way, or when the other person has a completely different expectation, we're shattered or confused, or it causes anger and resentment. But if we actually communicate through it, so you know, if you're getting a divorce and you love your family and they are probably confused and grieving too, yeah. you know, the best thing you can do is go to them or your friendship circles or anyone and say, hey, listen, just so you know, this is how this is going for us. And, you know, I love you and I want to make sure that we maintain our relationship in some way. And, you know, I'm the mother of your grandkids. So, you know, anything, right? Or, you know, nieces and nephews, right? I have a client who's devastated because she feels like her sister-in-law is never going to let her see her niece and nephew again. And she's like, these are like practically my children. Yeah. And she might not. Right. That's the kind of stuff you have to contend with. Yep. And that's the kind of pain that I'm talking about. And, you know, it was like that for me too. My brothers and sisters-in-law had babies that I was there when they were born and known them since birth and they were in our wedding. And now I get to watch them grow up on Instagram. And it just is with every time I see one of them graduating from high school or college and, you know, one of them just got married, one of them came out as transgender. And like, we talked about that when she was very little and now he, and it's these big monumental life things that pain me still 12 years later that I'm not there. And so that's yeah. what I mean by just like surrendering to it and honoring, you know, if I can, sometimes I send them a quick Facebook message and say, hi. And it's, you know, I've had some also really painful moments of seeing them And because sometimes when I go back to San Diego, I will go and visit one of my sisters-in-law who I was really close to. And she was really there for me when my dad died in 2016 and I had to go back home. And I saw her daughters and they ran up to me like from across the living room to give me a big hug. And it's moments like the, it would have been totally different if they would have been like, hey, like I barely remember you, but no, they remember me very, very well and they miss me. And it's those really painful moments. And the, the other thing I wanted to touch on too, what you mentioned is I find it complicated. Tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. With those kinds of conversations that you were alluding to about being respectful of your own boundaries about what's going on in your marriage. And because a lot of it's none of anybody's business, you know, but they're yep. curious and they want to know like what's going yep. on with you. And I felt like massive boundaries were crossed when we were going through it. My yeah. ex-husband called a family meeting with not only his immediate family, but one of their neighbors. And he was like talking about our sex life and like completely <gasps> inappropriate. Oh my and God. he was also doing it to like, save face for himself and defend himself. And I was there and he was saying awful things about me. And then I wanted to like write an email to everybody, which I thought was reasonable. My therapist was like, Mm. do you think that's actually reasonable? And you know, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be free? She was telling me, I'm like, I want both. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. I want it all. Thank you. But I think that that's also something that, oh, that's hard to navigate. You know, how much information do you give your, the family? Yep. Oh, absolutely. I have never, I mean, my divorce was not necessarily contentious, right? So I wrote this article. This is actually when we became friends, Andrea. Oh, what? 
Oh, that's right. I remember this. I remember. Yes. I called you and I was like, can we talk? And we had a Skype call mm-hmm. about this. So I had written this article. I think I'd written it for my blog or something and the Huffington Post picked it up and it kind of went a little bit viral. And it was about the fact, and I was sort of outing my husband as having been emotionally abusive. And that was the thing that collapsed my entire relationship with my ex's family for a good long time. Mm-hmm. And it's never quite recovered. But the thing is, is that like, and there's a lot to be said about that, that that whole thing was really messed up. And, you know, I screwed up royally by sort of publicly talking about things like this. I mean, yes and no, right? I'm still a little bit like, well, if he had been, you know, beating the crap out of me, like nobody would have blinked about me writing an article about it. Right. But because it was emotional abuse, because we don't have bruises, because, right, emotional abuse is so sort of... But anyway, my point is that, you know, people had a lot of opinions about that and a lot of judgments about it. And so there was this sort of, and so people like took sides on that, right? Mm -hmm. And I, there was not much I could do about it. I was really powerless over what people thought about that. You know, people were like, she's horrible because she said all this stuff publicly about her ex-husband. And a lot of people were like, yeah. Like you own that story, you're allowed to tell that story. I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but. Well, and I think it's one of those things where I know we kind of came upon this because it's how much is your story to tell and how much yeah. of it is their story to tell. Right. I personally don't have any answers to that. People ask me a lot about writing memoirs and maybe somebody's yeah. out there wants to eventually write about this process on a blog or even just to their friends. How much. I've heard of that a lot. Like how much do I divulge and how much do I not? And I think that it totally is a case by case basis. Uh And God, that's hard. I don't know. You know what it is too, I think is that, I think that people want to defend themselves. I think that women in particular want to defend their decisions. Mm -hmm. When we gain enough personal power to extricate ourselves from relationships that don't serve us, we don't do it we feel like then we have to defend it. Then we have to build our case behind it to support it. Yeah. And I think that that's an issue, that's sort of a patriarchal issue, right? That we don't feel empowered to simply have a decision and make a choice without feeling like we have to defend it and like, but see how, you know, these are all the reasons yeah. and make a case for it. Yeah. Right. Well, and from what I understand, you would probably know this more than me. Women don't make the decisions to leave <laughs> you know, just like on a whim. It's Jesus it's Christ. About, it's been thought about for years and years and years. Yep. And typically from what I understand is that when women make the decision to leave, they have had one foot out the door for a long time. Yes, that is 100% true. I had a client say to me, holy shit, if I had given as much thought to choosing to marry this man as I am to choosing to leave him, I probably wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. But that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. But it's absolutely true that women, we've had one foot out the door for so long that when the door finally closes behind us, there's very little to be done to open it back up. Mm -hmm. I had a friend tell me when I was, you know, in the depths of despair about my impending divorce, Mm -hmm. my friend Anna Maria said to me, Andrea, you have been emotionally divorced from him for as long as I've known you. And she met me right when I got married. 
Mm. <laughs> and it had been two years at that point. And she was one of those friends who really told me the truth when I didn't want to hear it and I wasn't ready for it. And we ended up having a falling out and then got back together actually recently. But yeah, it was one that. of those really hard truths that I didn't want to hear because I was... Yeah. What I was hanging on to, A, was his family, first and foremost, and B, to that kind of quintessential American dream of, you know, living happily ever after and having children. And because I thought that once we had kids, he would change. And I don't <laughs> believe that he would have. Who knows? I don't know. But I'm much better off now. But yeah, I thought I, once we got married, he would change. Yeah, I thought that too. <laughs> he did a little bit, actually. In my situation, he calmed down. But quite honestly, I think that was just maturity because we were getting older. Right. We were... 30, like when we split, I was 31 and he was 32. And so, you know, we met when we were teenagers and yeah. it was fighting and drinking and shoplifting, <sighs> all those like things that I kind of thought were cool when I was 17. And then when we were 22, I was like, mm. <laughs> yeah, not as cool anymore. I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just the thing that I want to really sort of hammer home is that your grief is warranted. And also yeah. divorce is incredibly complicated. Yep. And my therapist told me that. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what she meant until I was way in it. And was like, yeah. oh, this is what she means. Yeah. And divorce with kids is- Even more I complicated. Think, exponentially more so. It is. And why is it so complicated, right? Like because it's- All why- the relationships involved, I think. Yeah. Right. Because you become family. Because you're not just you- divorcing each other. <sighs> right. Everything is shifting. Every relationship around you is shifting. There's I think so many- that's where boundaries are yeah. super important. And I think that that's where your worth is important. It's not just like the healing of yourself, but how do I have this hard conversation with my former brother-in-law or my sister-in-law that still wants me to come to this event that I can't go to anymore? Like all of those things that have to be sort of unraveled and these hard, difficult talks. How yes. do you those with grace? Yeah. And then how do you, you know, make those decisions? You're making them not just for yourself, but also for your children, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, do I continue to show up at that event because it's important to my son, Uh you know, because my kids, you know, need to be there? Do I negotiate my kids going without me? Do I... (laughs) You know who I feel like has done this pretty well and talks about it? I don't know how in-depth they talk about it because I don't follow them very closely. Is Will Smith and Jada Um, Jada, and his Mm -hmm. former wife, I forget her name, Sharice or something? Yeah. And Will Smith and his former wife had a son together. And then there's been some interesting things that they've talked about and how to make it work. And it didn't at first. Right. But on they, the right I think, are a good box. example of people who have had those hard conversations and set boundaries and done it with love for the sake of the blended families. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I haven't seen the ones with her, but I've seen a couple of the other ones. Yeah. There was something that came to me that about guilt. And I was listening to Terry Gross actually this week. And she was talking to this woman who, she's a religious scholar I have no idea what her name was. I was in the shower. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> NPR keeps me company in the shower. And she was, this woman was a religious scholar and she had a son who was born with a terminal illness. And so, you know, every day with him mm. was a day of knowing, like they didn't plan for a future. They couldn't, yeah. you know, and he died when he was six and a half. Jesus. I was like, yeah. And she talked about the guilt in the aftermath of it and how she carried this guilt And, 
you know, I think Terry Gross was like, why? Like, what were you, you gave him everything? You, every minute of his six and a half years, you were present, you know, just had like this beautiful relationship with him. And she said, mm-hmm. you know, what I came to realize was that guilt somehow kept me active and that what it was masking was my helplessness, hmm. was really her powerlessness, right? That her guilt was something that she could do or feel that was keeping her away from the level of powerlessness that she truly had. Because to embrace the powerlessness, to embrace the helplessness in her first situation was far more painful than blaming herself, even though there was nothing for her to blame herself for. And it was just so, not that divorce is anything like losing a child, holy crap, like, but there was something about the guilt piece, right? Because even though, and this, I deal with this with my clients all the time, is that even though like all the evidence points to they might be correct in wanting to leave, mm-hmm. that they still feel guilty. Yeah. They still feel the guilt. And I wonder how much of that is because of like the level of letting go and powerlessness that the ultimate decision sort of requires, right? There's a surrender there. Well, I wonder, and I, it's, I hate saying this, like, here's how I would feel if I was in that situation, because mm-hmm. I honestly don't know what I would do or feel if I was in that situation with a terminally ill child. But mm-hmm. I wonder, and if I could have a conversation with this woman, I would be curious if it's actually grief that she's feeling and she's mm-hmm. naming it as guilt. Because I think that I mean, grief is a whole different conversation. I think that we don't want to feel that because there's some like finality to it when we actually name it as grief. You can have two different types of guilt. There's the kind of guilt where you made a mistake, you did something bad, and it actually can serve a purpose to change our behavior and be more in alignment with the person that we want to be. And then there's a type of guilt. The best example I have for that is mom guilt, where it serves no purpose. (laughs) It's just one of those things that I felt is fueled by the patriarchy of like, we need to do all of the things. And if we're not doing all of the things and being happy about it, then we are doing something wrong. That type of guilt, which is, I feel like is unwarranted. So that's why it's interesting when you say that, because I don't like to question people's feelings, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> I just wonder if it's actually grief. But yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, and I think the guilt and grief, right? Grief is probably wrapped up in guilt. I think that there's there's a lot of guilt layered into grief. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, to be perfectly transparent, like I just haven't had to deal with grief on that level. I know you have, and I haven't, so I don't think I can speak to grief, but not in that way, not in that depth. So, but I imagine that one of the many pieces of that make up grief is guilt. Yeah. I don't think I felt any guilt in my Mm. grief when all of that happened. Humiliation. Yes. Yes. But I don't, I mean, I guess there was some in looking back that I had to take responsibility for my part in the demise of our relationship. Like I could not sit here and point the finger the whole time and say like, it was all your fault. Had you only changed, we would be better. That's, I spent the majority of my relationship in that seat of completely blaming him for everything. It wasn't until I got out and then entered another terrible relationship right after that and really paid attention in therapy and 12 step programs and was like, Oh, uh, I'm too. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, let's talk about that because that is like the backbone. That's like the skeleton of the work that I do, right? Okay. That. Oh, that was humbling. Yeah. And my, 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely, right? And here's the thing, it doesn't absolve. This is one of the things that I always say about this is that it doesn't absolve them of, you know, it doesn't, you taking responsibility for how you showed up in your marriage that contributed to its demise does not absolve him from being a lying cheat, mm-hmm. right? And I think that a lot of times we think that if we take responsibility, then it absolves the other person, right? Or it makes their responsibility less or go away, right? And it doesn't. Like there is more power in personal responsibility than anything else because we then don't, like you said, you immediately turned around and got into another relationship that had all the similar like strains, right? Completely. (laughs) And if we don't take personal responsibility, we will repeat these patterns. Mm -hmm. And that's why- you know, the divorce rate increases with second and third marriages that I repeat this all the time. And I always say that I'm sure the stats have changed, but that 50% of first marriages in the US end in divorce, 68% of second marriages do, and 73% of third marriages do because we don't do exactly that, exactly what you're talking about. We don't take personal responsibility. We don't look at what the fuck we did to contribute, you know? Yeah. It was so incredibly humbling and just, I had also a lot of shame when I was, you know, really realizing what I had done. And Mm. I just want to underline what you were saying. Like, it's not, it doesn't absolve him of everything. And sometimes I would find myself sort of like keeping score and like, well, whose was worse? Yeah. <laughs> because he did what he did, that made like, I wanted to be the winner. I wanted to come out on top. And it's yeah. really not what it's all about. And it's not helpful at all. Yeah. And I think that that's just a distraction from doing your own work and all I could be responsible for how I was behaving and figuring out why I was behaving that way so as to not repeat it. And if I did repeat it in a future relationship, then I could own it quickly and have a conversation with my partner. That's what I've realized is the most healthy thing that I can do today because I'm now, just because I had really two really hard relationships in a row doesn't make me suddenly like cured and like this perfect person to be in a relationship with. I get triggered like, fucking crazy all over the place. But the difference is, is that now I know when it's happening. Right. You know, sometimes I move out of it fairly quickly and sometimes I do it after like several passive aggressive comments to my husband. (laughs) I have to go back and apologize. But I think that, you know, and it's taken me, he and I have been together for a long time. I mean, we just celebrated 10 years of marriage and it's Mm. like, I think just in the last couple of years, quite honestly, we have turned a corner where, and just in terms of communication alone, Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about that because, and it comes from all of the mistakes that I made in the past as well as him and us having to really come to terms, you know, people in our forties, you know, we can't blame our parents anymore. You get to a certain point where it's like, nope, can't blame our exes anymore. Nope. Like now it's on you to- We're the grownups in the room, yeah. shockingly. <laughs> I'm like looking around. Like, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> really? Really? You touched on shame a little bit. And I know that this is like huge in your wheelhouse, right? Because And shame is so huge in divorce or her. even, and shame is huge in just being unhappy in your marriage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not even at the divorce level, right? Even just in the, I'm not happy level. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about and work with shame? Very carefully. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, more specifically, I think that how I want to talk about it in terms of relationships, Mm. what I see all over the place. And so what I do on a more specific level is 
I'm currently running, I'm certified in the work of Dr. Brene Brown. And, you know, most of your listeners have probably heard of her. If not, she has dedicated her life to studying shame and connection and vulnerability and courage. And so what I teach in a very small nutshell is shame resilience. And one of the tools, you know, break it down even further is, and it's like one of my favorite modules because it allows you to get deep down and dirty with your triggers. And to explain it for people to be able to have something to walk away with is that we all have these wanted and unwanted identities in every area of your life. So you as a coach and podcaster, you have ways that you want to be perceived by your audience. You have ways that you would never want to be perceived by from your audience. (laughs) And we have these, they're very real in our relationships. We have ways that we want to be perceived by our partners and ways that we don't want to be perceived by our partners. Mm. And once you really get down and do this work, you start noticing it all over the place, out and about, even at the grocery store, like people falling into their unwanted identities and that's when they act out or they're worried about falling into one of their unwanted identities and they act out. Mm. And this happens in our relationships all the time. I mean, we just, you know, I have to check myself all over the place. So for instance, for me, and even just speaking generally from a trigger standpoint, I know that anytime that my husband and I have a disagreement where he walks away, I immediately go to that place of he's leaving. Yeah. And it's because I don't want to be perceived as someone, because my ex used to tell me all the time, like how, like what a nutcase I was and how I was crazy. And it was the classic gaslighting of Mm -hmm. he acts inappropriately, like stays out all night and like flirts with other women right in front of me. And then I act appropriately (laughs) (laughs) as one would when you're being pissed off, when your live-in boyfriend stumbles in at six in the morning and then he would call me crazy right? for that. And so it was this cycle of abuse that happened for years and years and years. So now I don't want to be perceived as that person who has so many issues and how is overly emotional and like all these things I was told over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So my husband's never even said those words to me, y'all never. Right. <laughs> I immediately go to that place of he's going to think that of me and he's thinking, how do I get out of this? And then I'm being passive aggressive. I'm being sarcastic. I'm being just shitty. And it's not about getting to a place where you never feel that way. For me, what that looks like is I pause and I tell him what's going on. And I don't have to even mention my ex-husband. I just say like, I'm feeling like this. And I just say, it's not anything that you did, but I just want you to know like, that's where I'm at right now. And it's just so we can like, it kind of just like diffuses the situation a little bit instead of everybody getting like, like, you know, up on your haunches and defensive and ugly and yeah. And I want to highlight here, if it's okay, the fact that your husband is not a life coach. He is not, (laughs) he is so far from it, right? So, but I think it's important that people like hear that, right? Because I sort of, I make up these stories about other people's marriages. I'm like, well, that's because you're married to a man who can have these conversations, but you were not married to a man who came to these conversations easily or willingly. Mm Mm-hmm right? I mean, it's taken a lot of work. Like, so when you say like, so then I say to like, this is how I'm feeling. And I just don't want my audience making up that like, then you guys sit down and have this like deep and meaningful kumbaya. Like what's it actually like? What has it taken for you to get to a place to have these conversations with a man who's just didn't like, isn't in that he's not in our (laughs) realm. Yeah. Not in our industry. Yeah. Nor did right. you grow up in a family with like parents that were therapists or anything like that. <laughs> uh, what did it take for me to get there? It took me not wanting to repeat my old behaviors anymore. It took me really getting just a lot of humility too. And just 
And it took experience of knowing that if I admit my 12-step programs have helped me a lot too. <laughs> like I'll say that from the get-go. Yeah. I have yeah. seven years of sobriety. You know, Codependence Anonymous was my first soiree into 12-step programs, but I think I really gave it, you know, my best effort when I got sober seven years ago. And, you know, that's step four. I hate and love some of the lingo and jargon that they use. Like one of them is like character defects, which I mildly hate. What it is, it's just like you getting to know very intimately what your shortcomings are and like kind of where you suck as a human, for lack of a better way of describing it. Like personally, mine are selfishness and entitlement. Mm. And I get really upset when I see it in other people. And it's the classic, like, I don't believe this is true in all cases, but when I see it, especially when I see it in my siblings, <gasps> I'm, tired I'm like, no, you can't be like that. But sometimes I can. <laughs> <laughs> so well, it's like, oh, yeah. And, you know, I love working with character defects because what I decided early on about- What are yours? I'm just curious. Do you know what yours are? Definitely entitlement. I have like a princess, an inner princess. Oh, typical um, white ladies. <laughs> yeah. I want everyone to do it for me and I don't want to be responsible. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to go dig out my, dig up your old notebooks. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, Oh my God. Right. <laughs> but one of the things that I really do actually love about character defects and uncovering them is that what I learned and I decided early on and I just sort of made this up, but it works for me anyway, <laughs> it makes me feel better <laughs> about myself is that a lot of our character defects are just our assets on steroids. Okay. Right? Yeah. Like, no, I can get behind that. There is something that if it was just went beyond the midline and it went into crazy, but if we could just bring it back to the midline and the, or to the other, like pull the needle back, it's actually one, they're often our greatest assets. Yeah. Just went a little too far, right? (laughs) Like, let's say control, huge one of mine, obviously Mm -hmm. as a, you know, classic Al-Anon, control is a huge part of the children of alcoholics or family members of alcoholics symptoms. It's like a huge one of them, right? Because usually we grow up in a chaos that we could not control. And so we learn to manage and control everything around us so that we could feel some semblance of stability. And, you know, often the thing about us is that we actually often really do know what's best and right in a moment, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes it's none of our business to tell everybody else, (laughs) (laughs) what's best and right for them. And this is sort of like my being a life coach is kind of a classic example of that. You know, I was going around coaching all sorts of people who were never asking me to coach them for years before I learned how to do it professionally. Yeah. And even when I got into, when I started our training, Andrea and I have the same training. And when we started CTI, I was like, Ooh, I feel like doing this work is like big Allen on slip. (laughs) (laughs) like like I'm not supposed to do this. Like I've spent 15 years in recovery for this. How does this jive? And one of the ways it jives is with permission. Like you're just not allowed to coach people without their permission. (laughs) Yeah. All over the place. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And you know, for the record, I don't teach just about shame. Like, Hey, let's learn about all your shame. Bye. (laughs) I teach shame resilience. And it's not to be confused with, I do not teach people how to avoid shame in their life. I 
wish that that was a thing, but it's not. And if anybody's trying to teach you how to be shame free, then they are selling you snake oil and run very far away. I teach people how to be resilient from the shame that you will inevitably feel in your lifetime. And we do some of us more than others. And there's research that I have not read, but I'm very interested in and that some people are more shame prone and some people are more guilt prone. They followed a mm. bunch of children actually over a couple of decades. But I think that, you know, if I could just kind of like name it very quickly for people that would love tangible tools, it's about knowing that you're in it. Cause I think that some people are in shame and don't realize that they are just because they've been so used to having it be their norm. And anytime you're feeling not good enough. And I know for some people that's kind of their baseline, but I'm talking about like specific situations. If there's somebody says something or you get a certain email from someone, if you are at a work meeting and something happens or something gets said, you know, a great example might be your annual review at work. When it comes to like the places where you need to improve, you know, the places for improvement. And Mm -hmm. if you feel shame about that, if you feel like you are a terrible employee or a terrible person, that's shame. And if you feel like, oh, some mistakes were made and you can improve upon that, but still feel like you're a good employee, that's different. That's guilt. And so what I do is, and again, going back to that conversation about guilt, sometimes guilt can be helpful. Sometimes it can, you know, if you're like chronically late to work and that's on your review, then that could be something that could actually help you feeling guilty Mm -hmm. about being late and making people wait for you. And you know, the shame resilience is knowing that you're in it. And so what I do is we also dig into a lot of like how your body feels when you're in shame. So you are fluent in what happens to your body, what's happening in your mind and your body when you're in shame. And then it's also about speaking shame. So it's finding the people in your life who are important to you that you built trust with or can build trust with them to share your story and hopefully being met with empathy and then also self-compassion. So that was a very fast way of going through, you know, what I work over lengths of time with people on because these are not things that were typically ever taught to us. Yeah, exactly. That is such a huge thing is the number of things that we were not taught that are so the conversations that we have as adults, I guess, right. That I wish that we'd had as children. And then I noticed trying to have them with my son. He's just like, what? (laughs) Yeah, no, me too. Mine are nine and 11 and my 11 year old is somewhat, we talk about negative self-talk and Mm. thoughts and things like that. And he's receptive, but it's just one of those things where God, I wish somebody would have talked to me about that when I was his age. I (laughs) know. My daughter's very different. And my daughter definitely does not want to talk about her. She's, I think she must've inherited this from her father, but I have a feeling, you know, as far as gender stereotypes go, I'm going to have the opposite on my hands that my son is going to be the one who's more receptive to talk about his feelings. And my daughter is not. So I'm going to keep trying. He's more of an old soul, that one. He is. And I think Sydney's newer. I don't know, but she's just Oh, both of them. And both of them are enormously sensitive in their own way. Mm-hmm. The, I, don't, I can't tell if either of them are empaths yet. I yeah. don't know, but definitely very sensitive. And to be honest with you, I really think that everyone is. Yeah. It's just been socialized out of them if they grow up to not be. We have different, it's funny that you used to t- say that because watching my son, right? He's, I always joke that I'm raising Alex P. Keaton. And- oh my gosh. <laughs> For those of you who are too young to know what the hell I'm talking about, Alex B. Keaton was the son in what show was Family it? Family Ties. Family Ties. The parents were total hippies. The parents were hippies. They were like, yeah, total hippies. And they were raising this little young Republican, Republican. who went to high school in a suit and a mm-hmm. briefcase. And Argyle sweaters. 
<laughs> and he was played by Michael J. Fox. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not raising a Republican, but I am raising someone who is, you know, I've always wanted to raise a critical thinker. Mm-hmm. And that has backfired on me because he's always arguing back. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> he researches the other side. And he says, he's like, I'm a moderate mom. I'm a moderate. I try to listen to both sides. And I'm like, <sighs> okay. But what he did say, he said to me a couple of weeks ago that because he seems to be very like flippant and not really, you know, deeply feeling and or whatever. But Yet I know he is, right? I know he is. And he even said to me a couple of weeks ago, he said, mom, sometimes it seems like I don't care about stuff or like I don't feel things deeply, but sometimes that's just because I feel them so deeply that it's actually easier to just pretend that I don't. Yeah. And I was like, oh man. And I was, there was a part of me that was a little heartbroken by that. And then there was Mm -hmm. another part of me that was so impressed with his self-awareness. Yeah. That at 13, he could actually say, like, actually, I feel these things, but sometimes it's a little overwhelming, so I just have to sort of shut them down in order to get through the day kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <sighs> and I still don't know how to feel about that, because I'm like, that breaks my heart. But then I don't, you know, do I want him, like, lying around sobbing all the time? <laughs> like, right. Not really. <laughs> about the atrocities of the world. Exactly. You just exactly. never know what you're going to get. It's that, navigating that whole thing is tricky as a parent. It really is. And of course, Mm -hmm. you know, I look at him and I'm like, of course, he has a life coach for a mom and he's got a very emotional father. And so of course he's going to be like, you know, (laughs) suited up, buttoned down and like (laughs) compartmentalizing all over the place. Of course, of course. Do we have any last words that you want to say about grief, nostalgia, letting go in the face of trying to decide whether or not to leave a marriage or moving through? the divorce process? I just think that having a support system is essential, which I'm sure you talk about on the regular, but also having someone, I know for me, my best friend, Amy has been such an incredible support system in that even though she never met my ex-husband, I mean, she met me, I was already remarried and on my second child, but she's, I always kind of worried that she would tire of me talking about the same thing over and over again. And she's reassured Mm -hmm. me. She's like, this is your grief. And it's part of my job as this friend of yours to sit with you in it. And no, Mm -hmm. I don't get tired of you because I would have really vivid dreams about my ex. Yeah. And most of the time they were in his parents' house. Mm. So it was like, finally, years after year after year, I was like, I connected the dots and was like, this isn't about him. It's not. It's about this life that we had together. And I truly think that my brain is trying to, and I've done EMDR, which helped tremendously yeah. because it's like muscle repair. Like you have to, you have to just give it time and patience and hopefully you can have a friend that also gives the same respect. Yes, absolutely. I got it's so funny. I still have dreams about my ex-husband mm-hmm. and I have dreams about him and his wife. Interesting. And- yeah. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of me that feels like I was replaced with, with you know, a better model, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I even asked you, like, I don't remember when it was, I'm a very bad judge of time. So it could have been like a month ago. It could have been two years ago where I said, do you ever see them together, your ex-husband and his wife mm-hmm. and feel bad? And you can, you know, bad, however you want to, like, do you feel a little envious? Do you feel like, oh, yeah. yeah. you know, when you said, yeah, I do. And I think that, <laughs> All I think the time. Why I was asking that was because, you know, I was still going through my stuff too. And yeah. it's just like, oh, okay. 
we're all okay. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it doesn't mean you want to get back together with them, but it's just that. No. Their brains are weird. No, I don't want to get back together with him, but I will have vivid dreams about them. And I know that I do feel that way. I feel like, you know, every time I'm in their house and I see something, a piece of art on the walls that was like, that used to be mine. Mm-hmm. Like that's fucking weird. Yeah. You know, and wedding when, ring and all and of those her, things. Yeah. Yes. And of course, like, you know, she's like dripping in diamonds and like all of that. And she's, you know, drives the nice car and lives in the big house and, uh, and you know, like. Yeah. Brains are weird. They'll go to that place. But like, logically, you know, like, it's not what you want. Like, that's not all it is. It comes with. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I don't want him back. Like, I literally could not want him back less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> But, you know, yeah, brains are weird. We hold on to this stuff. And I probably have a lot more work to do on packing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all do. And I think that you yep. should name this podcast episode, Brains Are Weird. Because <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yeah. Brains are weird. <laughs> Lots of unpacking. And I think that that's a great, yeah, just conclusion. There's so much unpacking and that it does, you don't get fully unpacked once the divorce papers are signed and you, you know, and he moves into his own place and you have your own place and the co-parenting thing starts. Like it's not unpacked. Like you just barely set the baggage down. If even that it's, I think that, and I don't say that to scare people, but just like to give you permission to have it be okay, that it is complicated. And that it is constant. Mm -hmm. There are, and exactly like Monica Lewinsky said, you know, in the beginning, it felt like, I don't know what she said, like a bulldozer or something. A bulldozer. Yeah. yeah. And now it's like a hummingbird. And Mm -hmm. like, I wake up from a dream and I'm like, shit, you know, but it doesn't knock me out for another, you know, day or two. Exactly. Yeah. It's way more temporary. I have found. Yeah. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and sharing your wisdom you're welcome. With my audience. It's and been I my so pleasure. Appreciate you and adore you. And I love having you as my friend. Oh, likewise. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for having me. And thank you everybody for spending time with us. I know how valuable people's time is and I appreciate that they could spend it with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. You can find me over at kateanthony.com and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.